Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 50 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 6, Episode 49 for Part 1 of this two-part case. This episode contains distressing themes, explicit language and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. This is the final episode of Season 6. It was the summer of 96 when Lynn Russell and her two young daughters were walking home along this tranquil country lane. They were attacked and tied to trees. They'd been walking the family dog when they were savagely beaten with a hammer. Lynn and Megan died in the bloody, vicious assault. Josie somehow survived, but was left brain damaged and unable to speak. The story of her slow, painful recovery with the help of her father touched many people. In October 1998, Michael Stone was given three life sentences after being found guilty of the Russell murders. But despite the savagery of the attack on Dr. Russell and her girls, not a shred of scientific evidence was found to link Michael Stone to the murders here. It appeared as though justice was served when Michael Stone was convicted of the murders of Lynn and Megan Russell and the attempted murder of Josie Russell. But as the case unravelled over the following weeks, months and years, did the new developments cast doubt on Stone's involvement. In the wake of Michael Stone's convictions, a full independent inquiry was launched into how Stone had been free to commit the murders. While it was not permitted to be revealed during the trial, Stone had a long history of violent crime combined with mental illness. Many who knew him were aware of or had been a victim of Stone's propensity for violence. Born on June 7, 1960, Michael Stone spent much of his early childhood moving between the home of his mother, Jane Standen, and living with the man he considered to be his father, Peter Stone. Jane had been married four times. While Stone considered Peter Stone his father, 
A man named Ivor Goodban is listed on his birth certificate as his biological father. Young Michael Stone was introduced to violence at just six years old, witnessing one of his mother's boyfriends taking a meat cleaver to a man he claimed had punched him. At some stage in his childhood, Stone alleged he was sexually abused, and by the time he had turned nine, he had already embarked on a life of drugs and crime. His mother Jane was unable to control her troubled son, and Stone found himself in and out of various children's homes, borstals and detention centres. Stone frequently absconded, hitchhiking, hoping to get back to his family home, choosing to sleep rough rather than relying on any help from the state. He always found himself back in some form of detention. Gary Day, a friend of Stone's when the pair stayed at a children's home, would later say, Mick was like everyone else, got into a bit of trouble, didn't really want to be there. In fact, Michael Stone had spent a total of 17 years of his life in various institutions for a variety of offences, including theft, robbery, malicious wounding and arson. Stone developed into a teenager. He drifted further into a holding pattern of drug abuse, burglary and violent crime. He was prone to uncontrollable outbursts and aggressive mood swings. One former girlfriend, Rachel Marcroft, said, When he's been violent towards me, afterwards he won't remember doing it. On one occasion, Stone had beaten Rachel so badly that she went to the police and they took photographs of her injuries. However, she decided not to press charges. Rachel Marcroft would later describe to police how Stone had tied her up in a similar fashion to how the Russells were bound. According to Peter Stone, he had been trying to get his stepson treatment since Michael Stone was 14 years old. Stone's stepfather remarked, The doctors said there was nothing wrong with him, but he was too dangerous to be treated. He was in hospital two or three days at the most and then he was shuffled out. While Stone had four siblings, most would not speak publicly about him, preferring to not even recognise they shared the same DNA. The same went for the two father figures Michael Stone had in his life, Peter and Ivan. Both of them staunchly denied that Stone was their son, with Peter subsequently taking a paternity test to prove it. Since the age of 17, Michael Stone had been saying that one day he would kill somebody, and there was some speculation that he may have killed before. Back in September 1976, when Stone was 16 years old, Former Special Constable Francis Jagu was stabbed and kicked to death in Maidstone. The following year, Stone was questioned about the murder of 64-year-old Mary Town, a part-time employee at Maidstone Grammar School for Girls. Mary was found dead in a disused wash house. While he was questioned in relation to both of these murders, Stone was never charged. In 1981, he was sentenced to two years in prison for attacking a man with a hammer during a robbery. Two years later, Stone stabbed Adrian Cunliffe in the chest, penetrating his lung and narrowly missing an artery. While in a court holding cell, Stone tried to gouge out the eyes of Superintendent Lee Plummer. Recalling the attack, Superintendent Plummer said, I can still remember this mad crazed figure scouring my eyes. He was trying to get a finger behind my eyeball to prise it out of its socket. I was very close to being blinded. 
Michael Stone was sentenced to four and a half years in prison. In handing down the sentence, Judge Felix Whaley said, I have to protect the public from you long enough to give you a chance to mature to some extent, so that you are safe when you are out, and don't resort to violence which might end with you killing somebody. However, once released, the violence only continued. By now, Stone had plunged deeper into drug abuse. He was addicted to heroin and was constantly craving his next fix. In addition to heroin, Stone occasionally took Valium, amphetamines, methadone, crack cocaine and whatever else he could get his hands on. He had sustained his £150 a day drug addiction through robbery and burglary. Stone would at first steal from garden sheds, but as he grew more desperate, his attacks became violent, targeting people who had just withdrawn money from ATMs. In 1986, Stone committed two armed robberies in one week. He first targeted Maidstone's Hazlitt Theatre and then a building society in Brighton. He was captured on surveillance footage and recognised by those that knew him. His only disguise was a woolly hat and gloves covering the tattoos on his fingers. Stone was sentenced to ten years in prison but served only five years before being released on parole. During this stint in jail, Stone was treated for a violent personality disorder, but unfortunately the prison service would lose his medical records. The majority of Stone's time was spent in solitary confinement. This was due to the number of attacks he committed on other inmates. He left prison in 1992 even more unstable than when he went in. The purpose of the inquiry launched in the aftermath of Michael Stone's convictions was to investigate the treatment, care, supervision and services provided to him between September 1992 and July 1997. In 1992, Stone said to doctors that he felt like, quote, killing children in the woods. The following year he spoke about voices telling me to stab someone, before adding, I could easily put a hammer in someone's head. Towards the end of 1994, Stone was sectioned under the Mental Health Act, and after a string of violent assaults, was sent to the Dillapole Mental Health Unit in Hull. He was clinically diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder, but under the Mental Health Act at the time, this was not considered treatable. Personality disorders are associated with considerable personal and social disruption. For Stone, this combined with heroin addiction brought the added factor of drug-induced psychopathy. Despite the fact that doctors determined that he was a violent and dangerous individual, Stone could not be treated at the mental health unit and returned home to his rundown flat on Skinner Street in Gillingham, Kent. Stone was then placed in the care of Dr. Philip Sugarman. He was a consultant forensic psychiatrist at the Trevor Gibbons unit in Maidstone. Stone made regular appointments with Dr. Sugarman. The doctor considered Stone to have an insight into his own condition, so eventually the mental health order was lifted. Years later, Dr. Sugarman would be one of the people who put Stone's name forward as a potential suspect in the attack on the Russells. During some of their sessions, Stone had shared his fantasies of murder, and there were some similarities to the EFIT image of the suspect. At the time, there was intense pressure on drug treatment agencies in the southeast, 
and as a result, Stone did not receive the care he needed. He repeatedly asked to be admitted to a hospital detoxification unit, but it was decided that he would be treated as an outpatient on a methadone program. Stone was a heavy drug user. He often injected heroin while taking methadone. The combination of the two drugs made his moods erratic and difficult to monitor. In March 1996, probation officers suggested that Stone exhibited a high risk of offending and warned that the threat was ever-present. Then on July 4th, 1996, Stone had an appointment at the Trevor Gibbons unit where he saw Dr. Margaret Stewart. During this appointment, Stone had what was described as an aggressive outburst. He made threats that he should be jailed. He would kill his probation officer, his family and prison officers. Stone had been seeing Dr. Stewart for some time and he had spoken openly with her about his desire to kill and his fantasies of torture. Stone had commented that he was too violent for prison and suggested to the doctor that he be sent to Broadmoor Hospital. Stone also told Dr. Stewart that he was, quote, pissed off with the world and he was going to do something bad. In his medical file, there is entry after entry of Stone making lists of people who he felt had done him wrong and people he wanted to kill. Dr. Margaret Stewart informed the probation service and Stone's GP about the incident. She told them staff at a local hospital would not be able to cope with Stone. Dr. Stewart didn't know that while the GP increased Stone's medication, he did not disclose that Stone had failed to show up for an injection three days beforehand. The GP had recently changed Stone's prescription and was injecting him with two different medications that should not be used together. He believed that he had increased Stone's dose in doing so, but he had essentially rendered the medications ineffective. Regardless of their concerns and despite his threats, Michael Stone was allowed to remain free. He slipped through the cracks, and five days later, Lynn and Megan Russell and their dog Lucy would pay with their lives, and their family would be changed forever. Two weeks after the murders, Michael Stone was finally admitted to the hospital. Stone and his representatives would desperately try to prevent the findings of the inquiry from being released to the public. They argued that it contained highly personal medical information and that if it were published... Stone would be scrutinised by the tabloid press. Their attempts were futile, and the High Court cleared the inquiry report to be released to the public. Ultimately, the inquiry would conclude that there had been a failure by all agencies involved. The report determined that throughout Stone's time in the mental health care system, no key worker had been appointed to handle him and those who were involved in his care had tried to divert their responsibility on to others. The attitude of prison staff who monitored Stone when he was serving a previous sentence were found to be lax and unaccountable. No follow-up arrangements were made, because he simply refused to tell them where he was living. The list of mistakes included the loss of a substantial part of Stone's medical records by the prison service, which then, quote, jeopardised his continuity of care, along with the frequent failure of sharing information between the large number of agencies that were involved in his treatment. 
It also included the failure of addiction services to mount an effective care plan for Stone, highlighting in particular their denial of Stone's request for inpatient treatment. Despite the catalogue of errors, the inquiry found that the care Stone received was among the best in the country at the time. The inquiry was unable to say whether better treatment of Stone could have prevented the attack on the Russell family. Sean Russell strongly disagreed with this aspect of the finding. It boils down to if everybody had done their job right, then there's still no telling. Michael Stone might still have done what he did. Um, I think you can just change one word there. If everybody had done their job right, Perhaps he wouldn't have done what he did. The tragic case of the Chillenden murders exposed the inadequacies of the mental health structure in Britain and presented a significant oversight. Michael Stone had fallen into this legal loophole because many psychiatrists considered his condition incurable. Then, under the Mental Health Act, people like Stone who suffered from permanent antisocial personality disorders were not certifiable as mentally ill. As a result, they could not be held against their will in a psychiatric unit until they committed an offence. Psychiatric units and hospitals could accept people suffering from such personality disorders on a voluntary basis. Antisocial personality disorders are widespread. The mental health charity SANE estimated that at the time 49% of people in prison and a quarter of all patients in Broadmoor Hospital were suffering from these disorders. Once Michael Stone's history came to the fore, the government announced they were pushing through a new version of the Mental Health Act to try and combat this legal loophole and provide a third way between psychiatric hospitals and prisons. With this new version of the Act, people such as Stone with personality disorders would be asked to sign a contract agreeing to close monitoring of their habits. As the Mental Health Act was being reviewed, Barry Thompson one of the inmates who testified against Stone, would recant his testimony and in doing so admitted perjury. Thompson had previously alleged that Stone had told him, I made a mistake with her, I won't make the same mistake with you. Thompson now claimed that he had made the entire thing up. He stated, Stone never said the words I attributed to him. I told the jury a pack of lies. I did not think I would have to go to court after I made my statement to police. When I was told I was going to be called as a witness, I did not want to attend court, but the police took me there and brought me home. Even when I gave evidence, I thought the case against him was so thin that he would be acquitted anyway. The Corral Prosecution Service ordered an investigation into the claims, while Stone's defence team formally began their bid to appeal the conviction. In February 1999, the Home Secretary announced that a new indeterminate sentence would be imposed on those people convicted of violent sexual offences were not considered treatable under the current mental health laws. This meant that people like Michael Stone who suffered from personality disorders would instead be given a sentence of an indeterminate time and held in a special unit or accommodation in an existing prison. A judge would impose a minimum sentence. That sentence could be extended indefinitely if doctors believe the individual is still a risk to the public. These extensions would be reviewed at regular intervals. 
The Home Secretary also announced a new scheme that would grant powers to a medical legal panel to forcibly detain people with personality disorders for an indeterminate time. This included people who had not yet committed a crime, but were deemed to pose a risk to the public. The new scheme was met with criticism from civil liberties groups and mental health professionals, who said it was a bridge too far. Paul Cavadino of the National Association for the Care and Resettlement of Offenders provided his thoughts. There is a real risk of detaining indefinitely people who would not have gone on to commit serious crimes. Mark Leach, chief executive of the ex-offenders charity Unlock, also commented, Locking people up on the basis of what they may do, as opposed to what they have done, is a very dangerous precedent in itself. In January 2001, a preliminary hearing was held where Michael Stone's counsel, William Clegg QC, made a number of submissions regarding Stone's appeal. This concerned DNA evidence and non-disclosure of documents. At the hearing, Stone was granted leave to appeal his convictions. A couple of months earlier, he had gone on hunger strike in prison for 13 days to protest his innocence. Michael Stone received three life sentences for the brutal hammer attack on a mother and her two children. Today, he was led into court to appeal against his conviction. Stone appeared in court the next month to challenge his convictions before Lord Justice Kennedy, Mr Justice Maurice Kay and Mrs Justice Hallett. During the appeal, the Crown admitted that one of their key witnesses, Barry Thompson, had lied, while William Clegg QC suggested that not only was Thompson a perjurer, but he may have been a police informant. Quote, what he says is completely contrary to the evidence he gave at the trial. He now says Stone made no confession of any kind to him and that his evidence at Maidstone was untruthful. Secondly, he says that he and perhaps he and Daly were both, at the material time, police informants. Ultimately, Michael Stone's convictions were quashed by the Court of Appeal who found that Thompson's testimony was integral to the convictions of Stone. It had been considered the supporting echo to Damien Daly's testimony of the alleged confession. As the decision was announced, Michael Stone broke out in a large grin and waved to his sister Barbara and his mother Jane who were in the public gallery. Outside the courtroom, Barbara Stone and her brother solicitor Derek Hayward spoke with reporters. Barbara said, What happened took us completely by surprise, but I've always known Mick didn't do it. Um, we're absolutely delighted at the outcome, but this, side, this time we're exercising some caution because there's a possible retrial. We have, yeah. He understands what's happened and he's pleased so far, very pleased. And how are his family doing? Very happy at the moment. According to Stone's barrister, his client was arrested simply because he knew the area. A witness saw a man who looked like him and he could not provide an alibi. With the convictions quashed by the Court of Appeal, a retrial was ordered. Reading from a 15-page written judgment, Lord Justice Kennedy said that the central question in the new trial would not be Stone's character, but instead, whether the evidence of the key prosecution witness could be believed. William Clegg QC tried to argue that Michael Stone could not get a fair trial, due to the prejudicial material from the media in the aftermath of the first trial. However, Prosecutor Nigel Sweeney QC submitted that a fair trial would be possible. 
Lord Justice Kennedy ruled, the retrial will not start until nearly three years after the October 1998 publicity, which is the principal target of complaint, and people do forget. Even if they do not forget entirely, the passage of time makes it easier for them to set aside that which they are told to disregard. The outcome was a terrible turn of events for Sean and Josie Russell, who were now robbed of the semblance of peace they found with the conviction of Michael Stone. They had since carved out a new life in North Wales and had tried to put the past behind them, but the retrial meant that Sean and Josie would once again need to relive the worst day of their lives. Michael Stone arrived at Nottingham Crown Court this morning for the start of his second trial. There's intense media interest in his case. His sister Barbara Stone, who has always protested his innocence, was in the public gallery as day one of this trial began. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The jury, consisting of nine men and three women, was seated at Nottingham Crown Court. The second trial began on September 10th, 2001. Nigel Sweeney QC told the jury that there was no doubt that Michael Stone was the person responsible for the murders of Lynn and Megan Russell and the attempted murder of Josie Russell. The prosecutor told the jury that they were going to hear testimony from Damien Daly, who claimed that Stone referred to the attack, comparing striking the victim's heads to, quote, smashing an egg and the insides being mash. Nigel Sweeney QC said that this comment was obviously a reference to the hammer going into the skulls and the brains underneath. 
Damien Daly was going to be the star witness of the prosecution's case, but Sweeney said that there was other circumstantial evidence against Stone. This included the fact he kept tools in his car and how the defendant was seen with blood on his clothing the day after the attack. Sweeney explained that Damien Daly agonised overnight before reporting Stone's comments to the police. Daly told the jury that as Stone detailed the murders to him, he was reading a copy of the Mirror newspaper. He said, I got to an article about a girl getting some bravery award and it said about the Chillenden murders. I knew there was one woman and one girl. I didn't know there was a survivor. Daly explained that it was at that moment he realised that Stone was talking about the same case. Under cross-examination, Damien Daly admitted that he was a habitual liar and said he had lied under oath during the first trial. He had previously denied using heroin and other drugs, but said during the retrial, I have tried every drug. He was asked why he had lied to the previous jury and replied, I didn't see my drug misadventures had any relevance to what I was doing at the time. I wouldn't have deliberately lied at that trial. In addition to Daly, there were a handful of other witnesses to testify for the prosecution, including Anthony Rayfield. He had spotted a man disposing of the girl's swimming bag. Testimony was also heard from Cherie Batt, who told the jury that Michael Stone had blood on his shirt after the murders. She said that when she asked him about it, he zipped up his top to hide the stains. While it had been initially reported that this incident took place just a day after the murders, Cherie Batt said it was around two weeks before July 24th, but she could not be sure what date exactly. Stone had been good friends with Batt's boyfriend Lawrence Calder, who also offered evidence. Since Calder could not drive, Stone would often be the one to transport his friend wherever he needed to go. This meant that Calder had ample time to observe the tools within the vehicle. Scott Hayes, a former friend of Stone's, told the court that the defendant kept an injecting kit in his car, which contained syringes, a bottle of water and swabs. Hayes said that Stone used a white or black shoelace as a tourniquet. Coincidentally, the prosecution highlighted that a shoelace had been found at the crime scene. This suggestion was bolstered by forensic scientist Roger Ide, who said he had examined the shoelace and concluded that it could have been used as a tourniquet to inject drugs. The video of Josie detailing the attack on herself, her mother, her sister and their dog was once again played to a jury. During the first week of the trial, jurors were transported to the scene of the attack. They followed part of the route Lynn, Megan and Josie Russell and their dog had taken that fateful afternoon. The copse just off Cherry Garden Lane was marked by a wooden pole. On one of the trees there was a single cross which had been marked by somebody shortly after the murders. The exact spots where Lynn, Megan and Josie were found were indicated with small white cards. Other locations were marked out as well, including areas labelled blood spots, bootlace and swimming costume. By the second week of the trial, the jury were told that samples of blood, hair and fibres were recovered from the crime scene, 
but none could be matched to Michael Stone. Forensic scientist Roger Mann said that the conditions at the cops were less than ideal for collecting evidence, because it was out in the open. Mann detailed the anonymous hair found on Lynn Russell's trousers, as well as two of the four hairs found on Josie's shoes. These hairs, quote, may have come from the same source, but Mann concluded that they did not come from Lynn, Megan, Josie or Michael Stone. The forensic scientist testified, there are a number of explanations. They could have been picked up from the school. The jury were then shown photographs of the girls' lunchboxes, both of which were bloodstained. One had been marked with two fingerprints. Fingerprint expert Michael Pass said that one was unable to throw up clues, while the second one was described as bad quality. The only conclusion Pass could reach was that the fingerprint had come from a finger with a loop pattern. He revealed that Michael Stone's fingerprint pattern was different. The metre-long shoelace found at the crime scene had been subjected to exhaustive DNA testing on 75 different areas. None of the tests came back as a match to Michael Stone. During the second trial, it was publicly revealed that initial tests on Stone's hair suggested it was similar to one found at the crime scene. When presented with this... Stone said to DCI Richard Bowler, I'm in deep trouble by the sound of it, but I didn't kill no one. Why don't you take my blood? Once again, Michael Stone's defence team did not present any evidence or call any witnesses. During closing arguments, William Clegg QC referred to his client as a deeply unattractive individual, but said it would be one of the biggest miscarriages of justice if Stone were convicted. The barrister told the jury that the Crown's case hinged on the evidence that was provided by a proven liar and professional criminal. Clegg reminded the court that Damien Daly had been seriously undermined by his admission that he had lied under oath during the first trial. In summing up the case, Mr Justice Pohl said that the argument of Michael Stone's guilt truly hinged on the confession Stone allegedly made to Daly. Providing guidance to the jury... The judge remarked, First, did the defendant make the confession? If you are not sure, you must ignore it. If you are sure he made the confession, you must also consider whether you think the confession is true. Jurors were then sent off to deliberate. They returned with verdicts 10 hours and 45 minutes later. Michael Stone was again found guilty of the murders of Lynn and Megan Russell and guilty of the attempted murder of Josie Russell. After the verdicts were read aloud, Mr Justice Paul said to Stone, You have been convicted of three terrible crimes. There is no need for me to develop that description any further. Michael Stone was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 25 years. The judge felt that the appropriate term would have been a whole life order, but 25 years was the maximum he could impose. 
Michael Stone arrived at court this morning hoping he'd be a free man by the end of the day. But after nearly 11 hours of deliberations, the jury found him guilty on three counts of murder. Two women on the jury began to weep when Stone's previous convictions were read out in court. Today we have secured a conviction. It is not a case that we should be triumphal, but we should be thanking our witnesses and the jury for supporting the prosecution case. We subjected this evidence to the closest scrutiny and by the end of this process the evidence remained, in our view, reliable and credible. With Stone back behind bars, Sean Russell spoke with the media and said... I hope this will allow Josie and I to put the anxieties of the criminal proceedings behind us and look forward to a more settled life in the future. Sean commented that he was upset that he and Josie would never have the consolation of an admission of guilt or sign of remorse from Michael Stone. In June 2002, the government hoped to implement new mental health legislation which removed the legal loophole that saw people with personality disorders avoid treatment. The plans permitted the compulsory treatment of mentally ill people being cared for in the community. Under this new legislation, people could be made to take medication but forcible treatment would be conducted in clinics. The changes were the first significant overhaul of mental health since the 1950s. Still, they were met with tremendous opposition, which caused delays in the legislation being passed. In 2004... Michael Stone's new defence counsel, Barrister Mark MacDonald, argued before the appeal court that his client did not get a fair trial due to the torrent of publicity and questioned the reliability of witness Damien Daly. In March of that year, an appeal judge granted Stone leave to appeal his convictions once more. The decision was another blow for Sean and Josie Russell, with Sean telling a reporter for the Birmingham Post that he was convinced there was no miscarriage of justice in Stone's convictions. A statement was released through solicitor Mark Stevens, which read, Mr Russell and his late wife had abiding faith in British justice, and they accept that Michael Stone is entitled to explore all avenues of appeal that the law allows. The appeal was scheduled to go before the High Court in September, but was postponed until the start of the following year. During this second appeal, Michael Stone and his defence team claimed that Damien Daly, a drug dealer, had lied to curry favour with the police. They had gathered new testimony from another inmate, Paul Gilheny, who claimed that Daly told him the alleged confession Stone made to him was, quote, all lies and bullshit. Defence counsel Edward Fitzgerald QC told the Court of Appeal, Daly is a career criminal who has admitted to lying to get by in life and has shown to have perjured himself on at least one occasion during Stone's trials. The prosecution's case depended on Daly's evidence that Stone had confessed to him. There was no physical, scientific or eyewitness evidence to link Stone to the crime, but we say there are two fundamental problems with Daly's evidence on which the case stands or falls. Fitzgerald suggested that Stone had been fitted up by Daly, who he described as a violent heroin addict with psychiatric problems. The defence counsel also said that Daly, who was in prison on remand, had a motive to lie to integrate himself with the police. He had an incentive as a heroin addict to get off the segregation block and into the general population, 
where he would be able to access drugs. After Daly made the allegations, he was moved into the general population. In police interviews which were not disclosed to either jury, Damien Daly spoke about overdosing, which caused, quote, funny reactions in his head. He also mentioned hearing things. According to Edward Fitzgerald QC, the judge should have alerted the jury, saying, It is the duty of the court to give an express warning on the dangers of relying on such evidence. And we say that no such warning was given here. This second appeal would be unsuccessful, and Michael Stone's convictions were upheld. In announcing the reasons why the appeal had failed, Lord Justice Rose said that Damien Daly had come forward with the confession out of, quote, repugnance of what had happened to the Russell family. The appeal judge said the evidence that Daly lied under oath and the evidence that he was a heroin user should not alter the findings of guilt. Michael's naturally disappointed as well. I think he is pleased that a lot of information has come out during these proceedings relating to Damien Daly, particularly his drug addiction and his propensity to tell untruths in evidence previously in previous trials. In court was Stone's sister Barbara, who has relentlessly campaigned to prove his innocence. You've been fighting now for nearly nine years. How can you be so sure that he is innocent? Well, how can you be so sure he's guilty? There isn't a scrap of evidence. There's the word of one heroin addict, lying person, cell confession. That's the only piece of evidence. In 2006... The convictions of Michael Stone were again reviewed when Michael Heath, a Home Office pathologist, resigned after being criticised by a Home Office disciplinary panel. They found that his performance had fallen short of the standard required in two specific cases. Dr Heath had been the pathologist to conduct the autopsies of Lynn and Megan Russell. After he resigned... Nine cases, including Michael Stone's, were being referred after a number of trials the doctor was involved in were challenged. However, Michael Stone's convictions were again upheld. After eight years of negotiations... It was announced that the 1983 Mental Health Act was finally being amended, and this included compulsory treatment in the community and the power to detain people with untreatable personality disorders. Going forward, mental health patients living within the community would be compelled to take medication or face detention in hospital. Those people suffering from mental illness could be detained if they pose a risk to themselves or to the community, whether or not they had committed a crime. The new amendments replaced the treatability test, which was once used to determine whether somebody with a mental illness was susceptible to treatment, with the requirement that appropriate treatment must be available. The Minister responsible for Mental Health, Rosie Winterton, suggested the new streamlined bill would provide more protection for both patients and the public, but many indicated that the new bill risked failing society's most vulnerable. It is estimated that it's 20 times more likely that a murder is committed by someone with no history of mental health problems. A YouGov survey at the time showed that 72% of people did not think that individuals with mental health issues should be forced to have treatment that does not benefit them. Sophie Corlett, who works as part of the mental health charity Mind, said, It will subject vulnerable people to big brother restrictions that will hinder instead of help their recovery. 
The primary purpose of mental health legislation must be to improve services and safeguards for patients and to reduce the stigma of mental disorder. The bill is not about service provision. It's about the legal processes of bringing people under compulsion. Our fear is that it will lead to valuable resources being diverted away from services. We'll focus too much on the perceived risk posed by people with mental distress and increase stigma. Public opinion on the revision of the Mental Health Act still remains divided today. So where are we now? During 2008, Josie Russell spoke publicly about the attack for the very first time. In a BBC documentary, 21-year-old Josie said she preferred to look ahead and to the future rather than dwell on the past. She could not bring her mother or sister back, so it was not something she liked to think about or talk about but now she said she was ready to find out more about what happened and how it had affected her. In the series, she met the doctors that saved her life and the police officers who came across the grisly scene. Josie said to a reporter for the Daily Telegraph, It was a tough experience. I had to think long and hard about doing it, but I'm glad I did. It put a lot of things in place. Josie made a truly remarkable recovery, and over the years she has gone from strength to strength. She left school with eight GCSEs and earned a degree in graphic art at Bangor University. Josie channeled her energy into charity work, even creating a child healthcare centre in Nigeria. In 2010, she purchased the family home in Snowdonia that she grew up in. She said that the home made her feel close to her mother and sister. The purchase was made possible with the compensation she had received from the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority. Josie said, It just feels right. I'm going home and I'll never leave. She made sure to keep the wallpaper in her childhood bedroom that was chosen by her mother. Her father lives in a cottage nearby. Josie bears a strong resemblance to her late mother. Long gone are the floppy hats that became an emblem of her courage. While she still has flashbacks of the attack, she said that she has a wealth of memories of her mother and sister Memories that will last a lifetime. The Chilindon murders truly gripped the nation, not only for the depravity of the attack, but for Josie's bravery and strength. After two juries convicted Michael Stone of the murders of Lynn and Megan Russell and the attempted murder of Josie Russell, it was believed that the case was closed for good. In 2022, however, a new confession would once again call into question those convictions. Michael Stone, the man convicted of the murders, is serving three life sentences but has always denied the killings. Now his solicitor has received a four-page confession from Levi Belfield, the killer of schoolgirl Millie Dowler. He believes its contents are compelling and will prove Michael Stone's innocence. It's a remarkably detailed account of what's happened, what what went on on the day. And some of the tiny pieces of information are such that you couldn't have thought to make it up. Well, it's the biggest step forward that we've had in the years and years that we've been working on the case. I mean, we've followed all sorts of leads. I've visited people in prison, we've looked at forensic elements, we've gone through all the evidence again. I genuinely believe that the statement is true. Uh, I've always said that Michael is innocent and I'm really hopeful this will lead to his freedom. 
Thank you for listening. And special thanks to our Patreon supporters. This is the end of Season 6 of They Walk Among Us. In the meantime, we are not having a full break. We will be releasing a number of bonus episodes for the next few weeks until we return for Season 7 on Wednesday, July 6th. Make sure to tune in to Episode 1 of the next season to hear about the crimes of Levi Belfield and his confession to the Chillenden murders. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.